0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, That's a hard act to follow, isn't it? Yeah. My name's Jim Breckfuehler. I'm one of the ministers here today, and I just want to welcome everybody. Um, This particular morning, we are going to be studying the period of Jesus' existence between the time he took his last breath and the time he was resurrected. And we could call this the burial time or the dead time. And we're just going to look at… Uh, you know, the implications of that. We're going to be jumping back and forth between Matthew 27, Luke 23, and John 19. Now, John 19 is not on your outline, so if you want to write that in at the top, it, it will come up. So, we start in Luke 23, and here's what we see. Jesus is on the cross. He's got two robbers on either side of him. And then at the base of the cross, we're told at some point that the soldiers are actually gambling or rolling dice to see who gets his uh, belongings or his clothes. This is prophesied in Psalm 22:18 18, over a thousand years before the crucifixion. It's just one of the many prophecies about Jesus that comes true. <clears throat> We also know that the rulers are making fun of him. They're mocking him, and they're saying, hey, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the chosen one, he should be able to come down. The soldiers, keep in mind, they're mocking him. They're giving him this sour wine, and they're telling him, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They put an inscription on a plaque over his head that said, king of the Jews, to mock him. Even one of the criminals was, was trash-talking him. He's over there going, hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. But the other thief said, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly deserve what we've got coming to us. We are thieves. But looking at Jesus, he basically said, this man's innocent. <clears throat> now keep these words in mind. He says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So now we start this rapid progression of five miracles, one before and four after Jesus dies. The first miracle is there's total darkness, from noon until three PM. Matthew twenty seven forty five says, From now now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Can you imagine if we walk out of here at noon and all of a sudden everywhere it was pitch black, no moon, no stars, it was just like nightfall. In the middle of the day, it would be terrifying. Can you imagine how fearful these people were at that time as they realized, hey, maybe we were wrong. Something's really out of place here. Now, interestingly enough, this isn't the first time that God used the number three in darkness prior to a huge event. Prior to the time, uh, at the Passover time, the ninth plague was three days of darkness. So God is getting ready to Rescue the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So the ninth plague he sends three days of darkness, of which then he follows up with the pass the, the death angel going over the homes of the people in Egypt. And the Israelites, if they placed the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorposts, he passed over them, and they were safe. But if there was no blood, he would strike the firstborn in the home, and that's how they knew that they were the Egyptians. So here we have three days of darkness prior to Jesus saving his people with the blood of a lamb. And here we now have three hours of darkness preceding the time when Jesus would die, the final sacrifice. God uses a a, a lamb and darkness preceding the defeating of evil. And then it says in the 46th verse that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders said, Well, he's calling Elijah. And they kind of mocked him. Let's see if Elijah shows up. And then Luke records this in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember those words. And having said this, he breathed his last. I've been at the the bedside of dying people when they took their last breath. Many of you have too. None of them ever cried out in a loud voice. Jesus was in total command right here. He was in total command, not only in the, 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 the depth and the loudness of his voice, but also the fact that he was committing his spirit to his heavenly Father. So now Jesus body hangs limp on the the cross. And we begin a rapid succession now of the other four miracles. Miracle number two, the temple curtain tears from top to bottom. Verse fifty one and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Historians think the curtain was about sixty feet high, and thirty feet wide, and four inches thick. That's a huge curtain. It separated the holy of holy chambers in the temple where the holy God lived on earth from sinful mankind who could not enter the holy of holies. This curtain served as a barrier between unholy sinful man and a holy God. The chief priest would enter it once a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people while all the other sacrifices took place outside of that part of the temple." The chief priest entered one time a year with smoke in front of him to yield, shield his eyes from seeing God, and he never entered it without blood. No amount of lambs, no amount of sacrifices could pay the debt for all the sins that Israel had committed. There just could not be enough sacrifices. But now Jesus, the perfect, final, unblemished Lamb of God, has now opened the door for us to be ushered into the presence of God. The age of animal offerings is over. The ultimate offering has been sacrificed. He's our high priest, and we now enter into God's presence through Him. Miracle number three, Matthew 27, 51 says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. There was a huge earthquake. Now, once again, God uses something that He used in a momentous event before. We find it in the 19th chapter of Exodus. God calls a meeting of the people to come to Mount Sinai. They are not to touch the mountain. He tells the people to… Now, listen to the wording of this and how it ties to the three days at Easter time. He tells the people to consecrate themselves for today and tomorrow and be ready for the third day. Can you imagine being there? <laughs> it would have been terrifying, but it had been really cool. Um, but, it, but this is the point. It preceded no, uh, Moses going up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive the law, which we can't keep. We're unholy because we can't keep the law. And now all of a sudden Jesus has passed. The sacrifice is done, and now he is our salvation for the fact that we can't keep the law. A big earthquake before, and now a big earthquake at the time when it is, the problem is solved. Miracle number four, dead people came alive when Jesus died. Verse 52, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that's just a euphemism for death, were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Scholars are not sure why they arose, and then they didn't go into the city right away. That's irrelevant, but they were definitely alive and walking around. Jesus had power over life and death. There's no other explanation needed here. But isn't it interesting that Jesus died, that sacrifice took place, and all of a sudden now you have dead people coming alive? The theme of the Christian life dead people in their sins coming alive through Jesus. Miracle number five, immediate changed lives. Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion had heard, ho- when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earth and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This would have been the centurion that would have been keeping track of the soldiers who were mocking him. Luke records in the 47th and 48th verse now when the centurion saw what had taken place he praised the god certainly this man was innocent and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts that was their custom at the time when they were overcome with guilt and sorrow, this would be synonymous with us placing our face in our hands and wailing and sobbing over the fact that we had made a horrible mistake. Immediate changed lives. These people that just hours before were mocking Him are now going, Whoa, He really is who He said He was. And then we jump over to John. Jesus' body is taken lifeless off of the cross and placed in the tomb. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid in. This was was purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. So because of the Jewish day of the preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We know in Matthew 27 that it says there was also a big rock then placed over the opening to the tomb. Now, unwittingly, the the religious leaders of the day and the Roman government turned around and helped drill home the point that Jesus walked out of the grave on His own. In the 62nd verse of Matthew 22, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests... And the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, Jesus, said while he was still alive, after three days I will arise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing it, sealing the stone and setting a guard. This was a crack group of soldiers, and if they made a mistake, they could be put to death. So there's no way anybody was going to be coming in and out of Jesus' tomb. So now the question in the dead period is what is Jesus doing in the tomb. We've already seen it after he died there were four big huge miracles. So now I'm sure amongst this group there's there's opinions on what Jesus was doing when he was in the tomb. There are some of you who might have just individual ideas what he was doing in there. Many of you would have said it's obvious he was on his iPhone. <laughs> and then a lot of the guys would have said he was watching ESPN. I mean, you know, because he, he could see in the future. He could watch, you know, the World Series and all kinds of stuff. But that's not what was happening. So let me give you a disclaimer first here. <clears throat> We're going to enter into an area of Scripture where there isn't total agreement, but there's a prevailing thought among scholars. Your church up- upbringing may cause you to differ with me. I have researched these two next scriptures thoroughly this week. I have consulted the writings of Dr. Presley, who was with us three weeks ago, Um, Dr. Jack Cotter, who's a very well-known theologian, and other scholars. These are men with one thousandth of their brains would be smarter than me, all right? And then I studied this on my own. And I feel I'm presenting to you the prevailing thought, but there may be a few in here that disagree. And that's fine. It's not a thing of disfellowship, okay? It's nor salvation. These are tough passages, but if you couple them with others and lay them out on a table together, this is a very believable position and makes sense as to what Jesus was doing when his dead body was laying in the grave. We go to 1 Peter 3.18 to begin. For Christ also suffered… Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ suffered one time for all of our sins, past, present, and future, for all of mankind. The righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus the righteous, suffered for us, the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, that He would reconcile us, we will be able to enter into God's presence Because Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but He's still alive in the Spirit. So He's alive in the Spirit. And then we get to verse 19, as He's alive in that Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited them in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. You see, the water destroyed the earth and all mankind and everything. But because of Noah being in the ark, he was saved along with his family because they rose above the water. Water saved them. So let's address an issue where we may not all agree on. It's an area where we can disagree, as I said, but a great portion of Bible scholars agree that Jesus did not go to hell once he died, to suffer more. Much of this thought came from a statement in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. The Apostles' Creed is not found in the Bible. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles. Rather, it was written at least 150 years after the apostles had died. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it was supposed to be a record of what the apostles taught. And now you will even see where the Apostles' Creed is amended at times to say not only that he didn't descend into hell, but that he descended into darkness. Now, we need to be aware that the final hell is populated at Judgment Day. What we believe is that the unbelieving go to a place called Hades. Now, Hades can have the... The general term of the grave, but in this particular case, Hades is, is where there's a separation from God for the unbelieving. It's a holding area until the final judgment, and on the final judgment day, they will then go to their final place, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Believers, on the other hand, when they pass away, are in paradise with Jesus. They're being comforted, they're awaiting judgment day when they will inherit the new earth and the, and the new heaven, and they'll be rejoined with their new bodies, and there will be no suffering and no tears and only beauty. I cannot wait for that day. Can I hear an amen? amen. You see, while Jesus' physical body in the spirit was in the grave, his spirit was alive. Now, remember, I emphasized He told the thief, you will be with me in paradise today. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to hell for three days. I'll pick you back up on the way out. He said, I commit my spirit into you, my father. He didn't say, I am going to commit it to Satan for a few days. There is much agreement that he didn't go to hell. Now, he does preach... To the pre-flood rebellious spirits, it's thought. Now, this is where the question comes up, who are these rebellious spirits? They could have been all the people at Noah's time. The, the earth at that time was extremely wicked. It could be all the lost up till that moment. It could be demons or fallen angels. And Dr. Cottrell believes he was preaching to all the wicked and the lost who had previously died. But what does he proclaim? Does he proclaim the gospel? There is no evidence in the Bible that there's a do-over after death, ever. A study of the Greek word keruso means to make a proclamation to announce. And Dr. Cottrell notes, the point here is that Jesus is proclaiming his triumphant victory over his enemies even before the resurrection takes place. The NIV translation of Colossians 2.15 rightly describes Jesus' triumphant death thus, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is what He announced to the spirits in prison. It almost sounds like Jesus is saying to His enemies, I told you so. While Jesus' body was in the grave, he was proclaiming his victory. Ephesians 4.8.9 is a companion verse. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And we're not exactly sure what he gave gifts to men mean, but he led a host of captives. And in the time when Paul and Peter would have been writing, the people that day would have understood that because when a conquering army went in, and were victorious, they would come back to the city, and they would parade the captives, the men, women, and children ahead of them to display their spoils. So they would have understood what this term, He led a host of captives. Jumping back to 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22, we remember He had talked about how water saved Noah. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But look at this, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and the powers having been subjected to Him. We have to remember that Jesus is the authority over everything and everybody, including us. Now, the big point here is, at the beginning, I said this was the dead period. But I don't think it was the dead period at all. I mean, we were already flying along. It would be like you were in a a Learjet, then Jesus died, now you're in a fighter jet, and he's pushing it to the limit. And then next week, when Steve talks about the resurrection, now we're going to push it into rocket mode. And that's just so um, small compared to the whole thing, but you get the drift. It was not the dead time. And at the end of three days, Jesus' his spirit and his body reunite, and this mirrors what will happen with us on the day of judgment. Our spirits and our bodies will be reunited. No pain, no crying in our new home. So what are our takeaways from this? First of all, we've got to remember God is always at work, and if we seek Him, if we pray over what's going on in our lives, and if we're patient and we honor Him, we have to recognize He will be at work in our lives. Think of all the people who thought, oh, this is over, Jesus is wrong, He's dead. The soldiers, the people that mocked Him on the way from Gal- to Golgotha and at the foot of the cross. The religious leaders who mocked him, they were all wrong. God was at work as he always has been. Look at the apostles. Wow, they missed it. It says in um, John, uh, Mark 14, 50 that when, the, when Jesus was arrested, the disciples all fled. They booked. And in John 20, 19, we find the disciples hiding in a room. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. These disciples that had been with Him for three years, they saw Him feed 5,000. They saw Him heal countless people. They saw Him uh, walk on water. And here they are, cowardly, holing up in a room. They lost sight of who it was that they had been with. It was Jesus. Now, good news is, when Jesus reappears to them, they get back on track, thankfully. And they establish an unshakable, trusting faith that turns the world upside down, and they establish the church. On the first day, there's 3,000 people added to the rolls. Church history, not but the Bible, but church history tells us that 11, 10, 10 of the 11 disciples were martyred for their unshakable faith with John the 11th one being exiled and died in exile. But just think of the anxiety and the fear that they could avoid it if they would have just said, hey, wait a minute, let's think back. This is Jesus. Yeah, he looked like he was dead, and he's in the tomb, but we just got to chill because it'll all work out. But they didn't. We must remember this principle all the time. God may not answer our prayers the way we think He should, but He will always sustain us. He will bring us through our times of trouble, but we have to be very much about His will and be praying about it and be patient. He's always at work. Second thing to take away from it, Christians fight from from a position of victory. We don't fight for victory. There's a much uh, often misquoted passage in Scripture where people will say the Bible says that God will not give me more than I can handle. That's not in the Bible. What the Bible says is that God will not give you more temptation than you can handle. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, there's no new sins today that there weren't 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. You will have a way out of the sin that is confronting you if you want to take it. When we're buried with Jesus in the waters of baptism, he shows up and he performs a work on our heart. And he fills us with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us power over sin. Colossians 2 11 through 14 says, In him, Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision is the cutting away of sin, and it identified the Israelites with their allegiance to God. But in this case, when you're baptized... There is a, by Jesus meets you there, and he's the one that does the spiritual circumcision of cutting away your heart, cutting away that sinful nature. And then he says, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God. When you come up out of those waters, you are saved by faith. And it says, who raised him from the dead. The same God that raised Jesus' lifeless body out of the grave on Sunday mornings, the same one that meets you in in the baptistry and raises you up. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, listen, having forgiven all of our trespasses By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is so critical that we understand this. You may be thinking, you don't understand what I was like in high school. You don't know the things that I did when I was away at college. You don't know the things that I did in my marriage three or four years ago. Those sins are the only thing that needs to be left in the grave, leave them there. Christians get out of the sin business. We grow every day more and more to be holy because of the Holy Spirit. And he will pray on us and try to make us feel guilty and go, no, I arose with Jesus, but I did leave my sins back there. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come the old is gone. The new is here. And the last takeaway is this. As I was just studying this week, it was just a a great week of, of just personal challenge. And I couldn't help but just see the unbelievable hatred for Jesus. I mean, He was really, really hated. And then he experienced the extreme horribleness of the crucifixion. There just really couldn't be a worse way to die. And then you see these rapid fire successions: first the darkness over the land, then land, then the torn temple curtain, the earthquake, dead people walking around, and the immediate changed lives of people who were just mocking him hours before. We think about the images of Jesus proclaiming victory to those rebellious spirits and leading the rebellious captives whom he had subdued, and we haven't even got to next week's resurrection yet. To call this the dead period would be not accurate. It's just so easy to forget what it feels like when we have the freedom that comes from being buried in baptism and having our sins washed away. We can forget that. With literally everything that we get that's new, we have that great feeling. It's like the car. Oh, it's a new car, and we love it, and then after six months to a year, it just becomes our, our car. It gets dirty, whatever. Or maybe it's a new appliance or a new piece of clothing that we've really wanted. But over time, the feeling kind of goes away. I was thinking that when we commuted for a year from 2002 to 2003, we would come up and once a day, we'd spend the whole day on Sawmill Road. And I thought that was just so cool. And I'm like, what was I thinking? I mean, I don't even like to go out on Sawmill Road anymore. The coolness has, (laughs) it's going away. But here's the key, that's fine when we lose interest in those things, but we can never lose the awe of being buried with Jesus and coming out of those waters. We can never lose sight of what happened on the cross and Him coming alive again. Maybe you feel like you need to get that feeling back. I would spend this week in prayer and just study the, the Gospels, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection accounts leading up to next Sunday. Maybe you're a cradle Christian, a term we use to someone who's grown up in the church. You're a good person from birth and you really didn't feel like you ever had a huge weight lifted off your shoulders, but you just know you're saved. But you must somehow grasp what goes on when a person who has struggled with so much is buried with Christ in baptism. And they come out of that water in the newness of life. See, if we don't get this, we can become selfish with the gospel, spiritually lazy in sharing it. We think, I'm saved, I'm content. We just get fat and happy. How sad when we have that attitude, though, that we deprive people of having their sins washed away and joining Jesus in heaven. I'm going to close this morning with this. Maybe you have never given your life to Christ. Maybe you've never experienced that freeing moment where you're lowered down into the waters of baptism. Jesus meets you there. He cuts away your sinful nature. You're brought back out of the water, and you live life totally new. Romans 6.4 says, We therefore were buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. We're going to offer a hymn of invitation, and maybe you're thinking, hey, I think I want to do this. I'm not sure. Come down, and we'll talk with you. You may say, I'm not waiting any longer. There's no doers. I want to do it this morning. We've got all the clothes in the back that you need. You can still wear your dry clothes home. If you say, I can't do it in front of a bunch of people, sad thing is everybody loves to see a baptism, but if in case if you can't do it, we'll do it after the service. The baptistry's is open 24-7. seven days. It's open all week long. We never want a person to think they have to wait. So don't put it off. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, you always have been a God of action, a God that works in our lives. You work in, the, in all of humanity. Our world seems like it's hurtling um, to a point of where people don't recognize that anymore, but we know as Christians that you are totally in control. We are all subject to you. You're a loving God and you've given us your son Jesus to reconcile us with us, with you. And we, we so appreciate that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand.